like as I've worked through the book and as Roger was sending me these etudes, for me it was like this excavation process where I knew what Roger was trying to communicate. We'd agreed on the topics and the table of contents, but I didn't know how he was going to do it. I didn't know in what way he want me to think musically. And so for me, it was this process of, okay, I know this guy really well and I, I trust him and he trusts me and I've played his music for a decade. I'm gonna approach this like I approach a concerto to play with an orchestra. It is August 23rd, 2021, and you are listening to episode 36 of the Candid Clarinetist Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Sam Rothstein here, host of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. If you haven't yet followed our Instagram page, please make sure to head over to our Instagram and follow us at the Candid Clarinetist. As of today, we are 20 followers away from 1,000 followers, and thanks to our generous guests today, we will be having a terrific giveaway when we reach that milestone. Maybe we'll tease the giveaway a little bit later today. Once again, you can find us at the Candid Clarinetist on Instagram. Speaking of our generous guest, joining me today is Andy Hudson, professor of clarinet at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and award-winning composer Roger Zare. Andy and Roger have collaborated to create a phenomenal new etude book entitled Elements of Contemporary Clarinet Technique. Just a quick little forward about the book that Andy sent to me that I'm going to read. Inspired by the periodic table of elements, Elements of Contemporary Clarinet Technique features 22 brand new concert etudes crafted by award-winning composer Roger Zare, with a rollicking guest etude from the celebrated composer Viet Quang. Each of the 22 works explores techniques both fundamental and extended, including breath control, slurs, glissando, multiphonics, circular breathing, advanced articulation, and more. I need circular breathing in order to read this forward, going through all these different things that you guys are covering in this book. Uh, a written masterclass from acclaimed clarinetist Andy Hudson precedes each etude and breaks down the technical and musical opportunities therein. A true collaboration between composer and pedagogue, this unique and vibrant text is a must-have for every modern music collection. I'm very excited to welcome both Andy and Roger to the podcast today. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Sam. Good to see you again. Good to see you, too. Wonderful to be here. Wonderful to have you. So, first things first... How can people get a hold of your book? Because I know it's for sale now, so if someone's interested in purchasing this book, where should they go? So the book uh, has just been out for two weeks now. The response has been really tremendous, which is really exciting. I've gotten so many nice notes from players all over the world who've picked up a copy and, and checked it out. Um, the book is available directly from Conway Publications, which is the publisher, at their website. You can also get to that location from my website, theandyhudson.com. Um, we have distributors in the UK and elsewhere in Europe as well. So if you're an international uh, purchaser, it's better to work through a more local distributor so you don't have to pay shipping from the States. Awesome. 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 So the first thing I was going to ask you guys is how you two met. And I'm sure that the first thing you didn't do was say, hey, do you guys, do you want to, you know, you want to write an etude book together? That's not usually where the conversation starts out. So I wanted to just know uh, how you guys met and sort of the projects that you've had leading up to this collaboration. Uh, Roger, do you want to start with us? Sure. Yeah. Clarinet Fest 2011. I uh, Where, where was Clarinet with, Fest 2011? Where was, oh, it was in Northridge, California. Oh, cool. I'll or as they'd say LA because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. People who are not from LA would say it was in LA. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I was really fortunate to get to work with Alex Fitterstein, a wonderful clarinetist, the summer before at a festival. And he commissioned me to write a concerto for him. 
that he was uh, going to premiere at this clarinet fest. And so 2010 and 2011, I wrote that. And then uh, I was in Northridge for this uh, premiere and it was amazing getting to work with uh, Alex and, and the ensemble there. Uh, but I remember as soon as the piece finished and it was, it was just intermission um, when suddenly Andy comes up, I'd never met him before and, and it, he loved it so much uh, and invited me to his quartet recital the next day. And I, you know, said which new pieces that they were going to be premiering. And that sounded interesting. I love going to these conferences because there's so much new music. Uh, even though I, I've never played clarinet ever before, um, I love just the new music part of these conferences. So uh, I went to his uh, recital the next day, uh, enjoyed it a great deal. And we got talking after that about uh, maybe me writing a piece for clarinet quartet. Uh, and a year later, uh, that became a reality. And I went up to Columbus State where Andy and his quartet was at that time, uh, worked with them. It was fantastic. And uh, years later, we just we kept on reconnecting at different places uh, and kept on working with each other more and more. Uh, turned into uh, many more projects when Andy was in Chicago and I was there as well for a number of years uh, until this last year. When, uh, when was it? It was last summer. You had the yeah. uh, Andy had the idea to write a book of etudes. And yeah, so I, I appreciate the generous characterization of me coming up to you and not what happened, which is me cornering you. Um, <laughs> That's usually what like happens with Andy. So it's <laughs> it was five minutes into Benu's fire that my quartet, we look at each other, everyone's mouthing like we got to get him as soon as this concert's over before everyone rushes him. And so we found him at intermission and we um, came up to him and we, we basically said, um, you know, we've heard a lot of modern clarinet and charity, but this feels really special. Um, you know, we're so fortunate in the clarinet to have so many great modern concerti. I think about pieces by Michael Dougherty or Scott McAllister, these great pieces that are with clarinet and band and that use them in such a good way. And it really felt like we were hearing another one of those pieces being premiered. And so we, we just wanted to meet Roger immediately. So we cornered him and he came to our concert and an LHC was born, which is a piece that I actually premiered in 2012 in the building where I now teach. We gave that premiere at UNC Greensboro at a conference. So it's amazing. Well, did you know how small the world was gonna be? <laughs> I had no idea. Um, yeah, and so it's been so much fun over the years. I mean, we've worked together with a number of different projects, as Roger mentioned, um, interdisciplinary work with physicists and dancers and and mixed ensembles with, with guest vocalists. Um, and then finally, last summer, I was sitting in my room alone, as most of us were, and I was, you know, asking myself, what, 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 what do I want to do with this time? Um, I was just craving the chance to make art, craving the chance to work with people I love, who I felt distant from. And Roger had just written some trumpet etudes for the Next Generation Trumpet Competition, of which my brother Nathan is artistic director. And I'd heard those etudes, and I told Nathan, I said, these are spectacular. Um, Nathan commissioned a bunch of different composers to write concert etudes that were then used in a competition. And I realized we need more of that for clarinet. We need more of these concert style etudes that teach contemporary techniques that are still virtuosic and still musical. And so I called Roger on the phone and said, you know, can I have an hour to pitch you on something? And the project was born. Very cool. I, I love how you guys met via hearing his artwork. I think that is, that's a great way to sort of get to know someone immediately 
uh, and and that you were so taken back by by what he had just written and and who knew at that point I bet neither of you knew that it would turn into such a fruitful relationship uh, that it has become so what took I mean how many other collaborations did you guys have obviously the clarinet quartet but did you play some of his pieces like on your recitals or like what was sort of like the back and forth that ultimately led to I mean you know, you said the trumpet etudes, but I'm sure there were more interactions leading up to that point. Yeah, well, when, let's see, I wrote LHC for them and for 10th and Broadway uh, back in 2012. Um, and then a few years passed and uh, Andy, you ended up at, uh, in Chicago and I took a circuitous route and eventually ended up in Chicago as well. And um, Andy mentioned something about a physicist um, who emailed me looking for a composer to write a piece for this project about the physics of turbulence. And she had uh, these really great ideas. She'd already been working with a choreographer and had found some music, but wanted to actually have some music written for this project. And this is the first time that I'd been approached by a scientist. First of all, I love science. I love writing music about why I love science. Um, but also approached by someone who wanted the piece of music, but didn't know what, you know, what musicians would be playing it necessarily. Uh, and so I finally got to choose what I wanted to write, which was an amazing and, and also kind of uncomfortable thing for me to do as a composer. Usually an ensemble is who's coming up to me and then I know exactly who I'm writing for. So um, I thought of a few things and, and then I thought, hey, clarinet quartet would actually be perfect for the kinds of musical shapes that we were going to be using to prompt the dancers uh, to imitate turbulence. Uh, and I thought about, uh, well, what clarinetist do I know? I know Andy Hudson and he's in town and I'd worked with him before and uh, turned out that another one of the members of uh, 10th and Broadway was also uh, at Northwestern at the time. And so uh, there, there was already a core of clarinetists who uh, I could reach out to. And I remember I, I sent you an email and you said, yes, like, immediately it's the, when, when you write the only thing to do is to, to say yes you know I, yeah it, it, it was, it was, the project was so it, interesting yeah i mean did, did you tell him that you had to write the music after you saw the choreography because that's the best part yeah they were doing the second edition of it basically so they had all the choreography made and were adjusting it slightly but basically i was getting physics lessons and figuring out how to convert those ideas into a piece of music that then the dancers would be conveying these shapes and, and uh, motions. Uh, and a clarinet quartet was the perfect kind of sound uh, to create these uh, musical shapes. I think the thing I like most about, I mean, your writing and the thing that we resonated with in Benu's Fire, and I've, I've played the second movement of that, the Phoenix song many times with large ensembles as a soloist and with string quartet. But I think the thing I appreciate is that the music is, I mean, it's hard, right? Rogers like, writes hard music and that's fine, um, but it's like hard for the right reasons. Like it's hard because it's artistically challenging and it's hard because it demands that I play my best, but it's not hard because it's written poorly for the instrument. And it's not hard because it's written by somebody who hasn't considered what the clarinet does well. And I think for that reason, like your, rep your repertoire for clarinet can be so vibrant and so diverse. I mean, you have simple pieces like a lot of UNCG students like to play white on white, um, which is this gorgeous piece for clarinet and piano, very simple, elegant writing um, that makes extended use of the clarinet soft range, which I know is something you really love, but then 
also, I mean, the hard music is hard, but it's it's hard because I'm stretching my abilities, not because the instrument is not functioning. And I think in Far From Equilibrium, when we're trying to like match these dancing motions, and at one point we had to improvise based on gestures, based on what different dancers were doing. And um, it really expanded my musical vocabulary, I feel like, to play that piece. Yeah, a whole part of that was the uh, research laboratory. It wasn't just a composition in, in the choreography, but also we invited the audience to participate. And, and part of the lab was not just science experiments based on turbulence, but also, you know, be a composer for a second, draw shapes, and then have the musicians interpret them or do the same thing with the, the dancers. Um, and so this, this whole idea of, of opening our minds to how each other works um, and not just kind of holding up in the way that we work uh, helps open our minds to, um, to do things in new ways that we never thought maybe we would have. And I think, I mean, that shows up in the introduction to the book, actually. I have like five guiding principles, which I try to equip people with to take on this journey that can seem so daunting if you're not used to living in that world. And, and one of the things I talk about is something I learned in our planning groups for that project. I mean, Dr. Hicks, the physicist, she talked a lot about her creative process and how she does her research and how she does experiments. And she was fascinated by the idea that in music, we generally are afraid to fail. And she kept coming back to the idea that, well, in science, when I fail, I've done my entire industry a service because now we know this doesn't work and nobody has to try this again. We can move on to a new avenue. And then she kept arguing that even when you succeed, we have to repeat the experiment. So even success is just a doorway to more process. And I've really taken that with me ever since those meetings that actually failure is just information that provides like new opportunities. And that's something that I hope people encounter when they inevitably find difficulty in these techniques. It's like, oh, well, like we've discovered something that doesn't work, but like what, what might work? That's really cool. And I enjoyed the the five principles and I really, that one really resonated with me. Um, I remember I was doing a I was watching a concert with Benjamin Zander, if you're familiar with him. He's a conductor at Boston Conservatory, I think, is where he still is. Uh, and he gives all these cool, like, TED Talks and stuff or whatever. And and he said, you know, when, when musicians make a mistake, you don't, you don't, you know, bring yourself down. You just say, oh, that was interesting. And so, like, you know, during the concert, like, the orchestra made a mistake, and he turns to the audience and goes, oh, that was interesting. I thought it was funny. Um, so I think... The fact that you wrote an etude book, I know for many students, you hear the term etude and it's, oh God, you know, I remember the days where, you know, Lori Bloom would give me four pages of Cavallini to learn in a week and, you know, it's, it doesn't have a positive connotation, essentially, because everyone wants to, oh, my light turned off, um, everyone wants to, you know, play the Nielsen Concerto or the Mozart Concerto or whatever. You want to play pieces of music, but... I think what you guys have done here is create what you're calling concert etudes, where each one of them has a name. It has a very clear progression and it's a piece of music. And so can you just talk about sort of the inherent biases about like the, the term etude and, and, and how you sort of circumvented that to create, I mean, I, I kind of think of a, a collection of 22 solo pieces is basically what it is. It's just each one sort of focuses on a different area of the clarinet um, so anyways, uh, either one, we go ahead and start. Sure. Have you have um, interesting history with, yeah. Talk <laughs> yeah, about true. your exploration here. Yeah. I, well, so I've written pieces before 
that originally had the title etude and then was warned by performers to avoid that word at all costs. And this was string players. Uh, so I was writing a violin and cello duo. Uh, and I was thinking these are compositional etudes, even though they weren't so much about the technique, they were about compositional techniques. So I was thinking about calling them etudes. And, and they said, no, don't use that word. That just makes us think of, of you know, endless hours in the practice room as, as kids and young adults uh, going through these notes, spinning exercises to sharpen our technique um, and not a piece of music that says something musical. Uh, and so there are so many studies out there where it's just about building technique and not actually about here's something that you might want to perform. As a pianist myself, I have wonderful concert etudes that I've uh, played in the past. Uh, Chopin's concert etudes, for example, but he doesn't call them concert etudes, but they really are. Uh, I've played, Liszt does call some of his etudes concert etudes, and I've played uh, one of those, and it's just, it's a wonderful piece of music, and it also taught me how to control my technique in a certain way. Uh, and so that's why the word etude wasn't ruined for me as a pianist so much, but I know for other instruments, you don't necessarily have pieces that are good pieces of music and also study technique in specific ways. For example, the violin has plenty of great studies on technique that are good pieces of music, but they're usually not called etude. They're called caprices or some other words. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, like as I've worked through the book and as Roger was sending me these etudes one at a time, you know, I would it was for like Christmas every time I would like get an email from Roger, like, here's the next one. And I would immediately start playing it and writing about it and trying to prepare myself on how I was going to communicate to a reader about it. For me, it was like this excavation process where I knew what Roger was trying to communicate. We'd agreed on the topics and the table of contents, but I didn't know how he was going to do it. I didn't know um, in what way he would want me to think musically. And so for me, it was this process of, okay, I know this guy really well and I, I trust him and he trusts me and I've played his music for a decade. And I'm going to, I'm going to, approach this like I approach a concerto to play with an orchestra or like I approach a, a work to play with an, um, with a chamber ensemble. Like I'm going to approach this like a piece of music. And throughout the book, I mean, I think that comes up in the introductions. Like, I think it's as much about how we think about music as it is what we do to get these techniques out. I'm trying to help people interrogate their process. And I think that's what Roger's music does so beautifully. I was just practicing one of the etudes earlier because I'm performing it this weekend in Pittsburgh. And I was just thinking that, wow, like this is forcing me to think more intentionally about where I circular breathe because you have to, you have to time it right in a, a moto perpetuo that goes so long. And that's like something that violinists are really great at is pacing a piece over that long without breaking. But for woodwinds, that's not as common of a, a thing we do, right? We think about Fly the Bumblebee, oh, that's cute. But like, this is a real piece of art that has harmonic, melodic progression and like mapping my circular bass onto it in the right moments makes me a better performer. And so I love the idea that, yeah, I'm playing this piece of music called Hydrogen that has a real identity and it's helping me become a better performer throughout that process of discovery. And then, you know, when I compare it to the previous etude, which is also a circular breathing etude that could not be more different, where there's spatial notation and values that I get to choose, there's a whole different kind of agency because I'm sort of constructing the piece from these well-crafted um, components. And so so for me, it's really, I find that so much fun, the discovery in it. You know, I, I um, my friend Robert Spring says that what used to be extended techniques are now standard techniques. And, um, and Bob is one of the best in the world at this. And Bob's a mentor. And Bob is right, I think, that for all of us, there's something in there. And 
I, I really believe that even if you don't, um, even if you don't see yourself performing contemporary solo or chamber music, or you don't see yourself using these a lot in your own practice, that they can be applied to standard standard performing. I remember practicing the Stravinsky three pieces last summer and flutter tonguing the ending so that I could get my air moving and, and a million other, you know, sort of off the wall applications. But I love the idea that I can approach a, a piece of music because it's really not any different than learning the Nielsen concerto. Like if you learn the Nielsen concerto, you're going to be working on your technical facility and your voicing because that's what the piece demands. And in this case, Rogers just laid out very specific demands and given us kind of a map on how to improve. And I think... And it, Oh, sorry. Um, oh, go ahead, Roger. Go ahead. I, yeah, I had one thing to say about extended techniques. Um, a lot of people don't think of them as that musical, but I love to try to say, well, what musical thing can I do with this weird sound that, that maybe, you know, a, a kid will accidentally produce, not intentionally, but uh, an older, um, more adept clarinetist would be able to control. How can I use that now to extend my palette of colors that I can now say something with musically? It's always... My first goal is to make a musical statement that's expressive, uh, that's, that communicates something from the performer to the audience. Uh, and if I can do that with a weird sound and make that sound less weird uh, and make it really necessary, then uh, that's my goal. And I think that removes the novelty and like, yeah, creates them as integral musical building blocks. I mean, it's interesting because there's so many wonderful composers of contemporary works for clarinet. I mean, I think about someone like Eric Mandad or someone, I mean, like Viet, his etude is, is fantastic. And, but like in Rogers Multiphonics etude, he has this beautiful chorale in the first page where there's a ringing B and the B is present in every note in, on this entire line as these chords are changing underneath it. And so there's this incredible harmonic journey that we're taking through a multiphonic progression that otherwise like a clarinetist could never, like I could never enjoy that progression on my own without being willing to consider like this other sound world available to me. And that's like one of my, I told Roger before, that's one of my very favorite moments in the entire book in Phosphorus. It's this, this, um, yeah, this incredibly delicate sort of haunting chorale. And it's the kind of thing that I love to listen to when I listen to solo violin music. You know, I love, I love Bach and I love to listen to solo Bach works for every instrument that I can find them for. I love to pretend to play them on my bass clarinet and, but to be able to like actually create a harmonic progression. And, and for me, then that's a new phrasing challenge. Like I don't have to do that a lot. So how am I going to phrase this, this chorale all on myself? Like I'm good at, I can mix that in a chamber group, but like by myself, like how to, it, it makes me really marvel at what string players are able to do with these nuanced revoicings, right. And these nuanced emphases, like that's a skill I didn't have. Um, and one that I get to really develop in that example. And, uh, I have a few points if I can remember them. So what you were saying about uh, the somebody, you know, a little kid making a sound and how like, so uh, when I was a I think freshman or sophomore in college, I had a friend who was a composition major and, and he, uh, you know, I, I kept saying, ah, you know, I just don't really understand like contemporary music. I don't really like it. Like, why do you, like, why do you have to add flutter tonguing to something? And he explained it really profoundly to me. And he was like, he's like, orally for me, I, I can't just have a triple forte. Like triple forte is one thing, but in order to go the next level, I need to add something to it. So if you have a triple forte and then you add flutter tongue, that changes the intensity of it. And then it made sense to me. I was like, oh, okay. So, so not only can you have a diminuendo to four Ps, but then you can have like an air tone afterwards. So then, so it, it, it the way he explained it to me just really made a lot of sense as to like, 
how contemporary music works, where it explores all these different, you know, we have regular music, but then you can go over here and you can grab over here and then you can get something from down here. And it, it really just changes what you have available to you. And the other point I was going to make is you guys kind of have a double whammy with this, with this etude book, because it's, it's not only the word etude, but also contemporary. And because that also has a bit of a negative connotation, I think with a lot of people who study music. Um, and I always laugh, like the whole thing is, you know, we used to have like Rhapsody in Blue on, on an audition at school, right? And you'd get half the studio be like, yeah, I don't play jazz, you know? And and I always thought that was funny because, well, okay, fine, you don't play jazz and you don't have to like change over chords, but you have to play Rhapsody in Blue. You have to play American in Paris. You have to play pop shows where you have to play clarinet solos. Like, so you better learn how to play jazz. And it's the same thing with contemporary music. Like, oh, I don't play contemporary music. Well, you're going to play Red of Spring. That's got some stuff in it. You know, you're going to play stuff with extended techniques, so you better get comfortable and familiar with it. So how do you guys, I mean, I'm, I know the answer to this, but I'll, I'll, I'll just preface it by saying I really appreciated how you organized the book because it doesn't just start off with here's an etude with a bunch of quarter tones. It starts off with here are some fundamental challenges with the clarinet. For example, downward slurring. For example, playing soft in a high dynamic, or excuse me, playing soft in a soft dynamic in the high register. So the first couple of etudes kind of explore the challenges and idiosyncrasies of the clarinet. And so you get this nice, beautiful little introduction, and then you guys slowly start to expand. Oh, here's some quarter tones. Here's circular breathing. Here's multiphonics. So was that intentional that you guys did it that way? I think, I mean, the, for me, for me, it's like all the techniques are sort of related to one another. And I just know that if if we haven't considered breath control in the upper register, that a lot of these techniques are going to be difficult. And I know that if we can't make a clean slur, then we maybe we should focus more on that before we try to slur two multiphonics together. Um, and it, like, you know, there's, there's two etudes on single tonguing later in the book. And it's like, I want the single tongue to be clean and effective and each of those explores the tongue in a different way before we double tongue, um, before we slap tongue. And so the goal for me is that I want to relate extended techniques to people's experience with what they consider traditional techniques. You know, some of the best double tonguers I know are orchestral players. I mean, it was incredible to hear Sam Almaguer double tonguing in the Beethoven one with the symphony, just pristine, you know? And it's because the technique has a lot of use in, the, in those settings. I mean, I know a lot of orchestral players who can double tongue with incredible finesse in all registers. And the same is true of circular breathing. A lot of orchestral players will use that technique, especially when they're playing like a pop show and there's just endless notes in some arrangement. And so what I want to do is help people see, yeah, and, and even beyond that, there's actually more crayons in the crayon box. Like this is 64-bit with a sharpener in the back. Like we can really, there's all kinds of shades available to us. And one of the things that comes up, especially in the articulation etudes, is like, okay, this etude's about double-tonguing, but in this one spot, this really hard to double-tongue. So, like, as your teacher in this book, as your guide, I'm hoping, like, okay, you should consider single-tonguing just these notes, and here's why you should do that. So that hopefully by the time you get to the last three etudes, which are kind of designed to synthesize the techniques, that people have a really thoughtful application. Because, you know, it, it's great fun, right? I remember kids in undergrad trying to play higher than each other. And, like, that's cool. I get it. When you're, like, 18, it's really fun to, like explore playing high notes or playing really loud. 
but over time the goal is that all these things just help you be a better artist like a more cohesive full-throated artist who really has at their disposal any sound they can imagine like they know how to get that from their instrument and i mean one thing you know i appreciate in the forward that that uh, eric mandat wrote for the book he talks a lot about how in a, in a book like this you know like everyone's physiology is so different right i talk about this a little bit like what works for me might not work for you. And one thing Eric says that I love is that you should take notes all the time in the book and just ask yourself, if this isn't working, what should I try? And if this is working, what's working about it? Like continuously return to that process because the same, some of the things that make uh, some of these techniques difficult are things that also make other parts of your playing less complete, right? If the embouchure is, is too bite and too tight, then some things are really hard to do. You know, and, and sometimes extended techniques require you to have really strong fundamentals. And then sometimes they require you to stand on your head, like to play a really loud quarter tone. Sometimes you have to push a lot of air, but sometimes you have to push the same amount of air to play a really soft quarter tone. And if you played a traditional pitch with that same air, it would be triple forte, but with a quarter tone, it might be piano because of the resistance. And so the goal is that it really makes us flexible and that we see that the clarinet is this intricate ecosystem. I mean, we have such a rich history. Like we have a concerto by Mozart. You know, we have, we got sonatas by Brahms and we, we got Debussy and we got Copeland and we got Joan Tower. Like we are really lucky. Um, and I just, I like, why, why stop there? Like, why not have more, you know, if all those composers saw in the instrument such potential and they each pushed it. I mean, think about how virtual, if you've played the Mozart concerto with orchestra, it's exhausting. Like that's the tiredest I've ever been after a concerto is playing Mozart. Every time I do it, it's, yeah, oh my God, have I been up here for a half hour? Like, I wonder what strain of the Rondo is next. I can't remember. I'm just going to play one and hope for the best, you know? But <laughs> but, but that, that advanced the instrument forward when that was written. That pushed the instrument ahead. Because that when that piece came out, it was contemporary on the cutting edge. And now we consider that this standard masterwork that's still really hard to play. And I hope that what Roger's written, and I know that a lot of what he's written for the clarinet in his lifetime, in 100 years, people will look at it and say, oh, this, this pushed the instrument ahead. So for me, it's, it's like we're building on that foundation. We're not throwing it out. We're saying, no, because it's so great, because we have such a rich standard repertoire, we have to build on it. I don't know what you think about that, Roger. What's it like for you to consider that? I don't know. Coming from not being a clarinetist myself, it's a different perspective, I think. Because I, I just, I think of the clarinet as being this wonderfully agile and versatile instrument that I can do, I can get away with just about anything, but I also know the tendencies. I know some things are harder than others. And so how can I use it to its fullest without making it impossible is, is my challenge. Uh, so yeah, I, I try to push uh, to whatever the limit of the expression uh, that I can and then go a little farther uh, is really what my goal is. I, I, as a composer, it's, you know, it's, it's a problem if you try to write something that is something. You just have to write something that's honest to yourself and is the best that you can write and uh, not try to fit in to history in some way or another. Um, and so, you know, I'd love it if my music sticks around for a hundred years. Uh, and if it doesn't, I've at least contributed to what's going on now with the clarinet. Um, and all I can do is, is write my best piece every time I write a piece and, and hope that it does make the clarinet, you know, do one more thing uh, and express one more thing than it ever has before. Well, I have a question. For this might be more of a question for Andy because you're probably more familiar with the with the the repertoire. But where do you see where do you see this fitting in 
pedagogically. Um, cause I, I mean, as I was reading it, I was on the airplane reading it. I was like, this is something that, that people should teach to their students. It should be part of the, you know, I mean, we have the Rose Etudes, we have the Cavallini's, we have the Ool, we have the Cal Staccato studies. I mean, to me, this fits in there and it fits in a niche that, that hasn't been filled yet. So where do you think that this fits in? Is it kind of sprinkled in here and there, or is it like, is this one of those, you know, I remember you made a joke about it in your book, where is this one where you like cross it off and move on to the next one? And like, is that how you no. foresee it being taught? Or is it kind of just like, hmm, you know, you're playing the Stravinsky three pieces. Maybe we should do the flutter tonguing just to get your air moving or to use yeah. an example that you did earlier. No, that's great. Um, yeah, you know, I think for me, I, I can only speak to what I've done with my own practice so far. And that's, I come to the different etudes when I want to focus on different things things. So for me, um, this is a great, I, I like, I hope that it's a resource first and foremost for people who want to interrogate their creative process and the way they learn. So there's a lot of written material in the book. I mean, I don't know how many tens of thousands of words we wrote, but a lot more than I had planned to write initially when I sort of conceptualized the book initially with Roger. Um, I, I don't know that I had anticipated how much writing I would end up doing for each chapter. And I don't know that our publisher did either, but they were very gracious. Um, but we ended up, I ended up sort of using each etude as a springboard to sort of explore that concept. And wherever that that took me, I just tried, I tried to go there. Um, I hope that someone reading it would imagine that like I was sharing a lesson with them and that we were working together through through one of these techniques, one of these concepts, but but I don't only approach the etudes in terms of if you can get the slap tongue out, you succeeded, because the you know I think about like the slap tonguing etude uranium. It's like this is a gorgeous etude, and if you fail on every slap tongue, the etude would still hit hard. Like it's really special, it's really artistic and and colorful. And so I would hope someone would feel the bravery to play the piece, and maybe they don't succeed on any slap tongues. Well, that's fine. Like. I've been there. You know, like we've all had concerts where it doesn't go as you planned, but that doesn't mean that the performance has failed, right? It just means that we have more more work to do, more to explore. So I, I would hope that the, it would be a resource to people who want to interrogate modern techniques. And and maybe it's it's a resource where the etudes are aspirational for some players. Maybe the etudes are comfortable for some players. You know, they some of them get pretty tough, some of them are not so tough. And I, I tried not to make the book targeted at a certain um, ability level yet. Like that's not really, I think the goal of this, the goal of this one was more to explore these techniques as they might be realized by Roger, just to see what he resonated with, with each technique. I mean, the theme and variations, the variations are, um, you know, I mean, the neon variation is really high and pretty tough, but the theme is, is very simple and straight ahead. And the idea is that you could play the theme, find it really beautiful. And then maybe you would learn the variations that are comfortable at first and they're split up into different quarter tone ranges. But for me, I mean, some of my students have gotten the book and came in and want to do some of them. And so I said, what do you, what do you need to learn? You know? And so one student needs to circular breathe. So we're going to do circular breathing etude. One student needs to double tongue. So we'll do a double tonguing etude. I assigned the single tonguing etude. It's the first single tonguing etude is all about endurance. And that can be really, I mean, even for, like, even for me, that can be really draining. And so, yeah, I'd like you to learn the single tonguing etude. I hope that will help you. And it's a great, you know, it's, I have a, I have a book I use for running that's about, um, mobility and treating injury. And I go to the book when I need to know, like, okay, I want to think about my running form. I want to think about my ankles or whatever. 
I'll find the chapter on ankles and I'll open it up. Or, you know, I really want to focus on like my nutrition for this marathon cycle. Okay, I'll go to the chapter on nutrition. You know, I can really target what I want from it. And even though I've read that whole book cover to cover, I revisit certain parts over and over. And even when I was practicing Roger's etude earlier today, I went back and read what I wrote about one passage to figure out what I should do. Because <laughs> I, was, I was like, how, how would I do this? I wonder. And then I went back and, oh, yeah, I, I should do this. Like I, I made a decision about that earlier. And I didn't think of that particular solution in the moment, which was kind of bizarre. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I certainly, I use the rose etudes because they're so progressive, right? They start simple, they finish really tough. The ule etudes, they start simple, they finish tough. This is true of most etude books. But in, in this book, it's a little different. It's like the concepts begin familiar and they finish less familiar. And so somebody can approach it from, the first four etudes in the book will not seem anything out of the ordinary to most players except that Roger includes a really clever usage of feathered beaming in one of the slurring etudes where people have to think about how to pace a feathered gesture where they get to decide, you know, and then as you get into the other topics, it becomes less familiar. And we tried to organize it in such a way that they unfold maybe in a way that, you know, quarter tones are only as different as pushing a different fingering and supporting more intentionally. So that's not that different. Most of us have played quarter tones by accident. And so hopefully that would not seem so overwhelming to someone. And we have charts for them right next to the etudes with all the fingerings they need. And in the back of the book's a full chart if they want to reference that. And then it becomes more and more abstract. We have glissandi, which maybe is not a strange technique for a lot of people who've played Gershwin, but this might give them a new way to think about that. And, and hopefully the material I've written will be helpful even for someone who says, I might never play this etude, but I'm going to use it as a tool to improve my glissandi so that I can take it back with me into the orchestra, back with me into the classroom. I think it's a nice bonus that these pieces were all intentionally written for performance and not just as technique builders. So if you do love one of them, then why not perform it and really test if you know those techniques by heart and it can also create music out of them and not just the sounds as they demand. So uh, and it's, that's always my intention to, to make sure that whatever I write is musical uh, and stands on its own as music. And I think that's one of the most unique parts about it is it doesn't feel like an etude. Uh, it feels like a solo piece of music. Like I said earlier, it feels like 22 solo pieces of music. And I do love, you know, I think one of this, one of the reasons that this is also a, a unique resource is that, you know, there is a foreword written about every single etude and about the technique involved with that etude. And then there's also on the next page or two pages, however long it takes, there's specific, you know, measure here, measure 30 here, you know, try doing this to, to help out. I mean, so there's specifically, it identifies the specific problems that you might encounter in the particular work and how to approach them. And that's really unique. Uh, you, you know, you don't get that in rows or wool or whatever else. So, uh, congratulations to you guys for sort of coming up with that concept and i think it's really effective here i i, I can't tell you how effective because like i said i've just read it on the planet and get to play any of it but uh but I, I i really enjoyed reading about the technique and and things to help it and then as i was looking through the etudes i was going back and referencing all the different areas that you targeted and it's really great just lots of really good pieces of advice and i think that i think what i'm what i'm ahead. hoping is that people um you know i mean the, the funny thing is like most people don't take the time to write down their approach but you know, Sam, when you were at UNCG a few years ago teaching and you kind of walked a student, you said, you said, here's how I would practice and learn the Mendelssohn Scherzo. 
and you walk them through your process. And what I'm hoping people will do is as they walk through like my process, and I try to make that process as global as possible so that learners of all abilities can at least engage with the process, even if the attitude they feel like is a little aspirational for them at this point. But what I'm hoping people will do is maybe they'll read the guide and they'll say, well, what, what Andy's suggesting in Measure 30 is not working. Like, what, what would I, oh, oh, actually for me, this thing, and they'll make a note like, oh, and also try this. And then when they teach these to somebody else, their process can shine. And the things that I said that don't work for them will just not be part of their practice, but then other sort of elements develop. And I think that's true of, I remember vividly sort of studying the masterworks in graduate school and undergrad. And, and my teachers had a specific process, like here's how we're gonna pursue the Poulong Sonata. Like here's how we're gonna get through Black Dog. Here's how we're gonna get through Hindemith Sonata. And they had a strategy for this is what, this is how I unpack the piece. And so what I'm trying to do in these is just give them that up front so that they can really focus on making the art and trying one approach, because of course my approach might not work for them. And that's, that's okay with me, as long as it inspires them to think about what might work. That's awesome. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely going to use this in the future, uh, with any future students, you know, depending on what we're working on. I, I think it's a tremendously valuable resource. And, uh, I think that all these extended techniques and, and different areas of the instrument that you targeted, it, it's for everybody. I mean, it really is. It's everybody can learn something from them. There's, there's things that I can't execute right now that I'm looking forward to diving into and, and, you know, being able to slap tongue, being able to circular breathe, being able to double tongue. Those are things that I can't do right now. And so it's, it's for everybody. Um, you know, I've been playing professionally for 13 years and playing clarinet for 23 years. And I absolutely can still learn something from this book. So everyone can stand to learn something. And if you know it all, then you have 22 new pieces of music to play. So you could still have that as, as what you gain from this. Um, so once again, can I, can I get you guys to sort of guide everyone to where they can, they can go ahead and purchase this book? Sure. Conway publications, uh, has their website and they sell it directly from there at a discount and you can just get your copy straight from there. If, uh, Andy, go ahead. If, if you're on in Europe, then you have other sources that'll be better. Yeah, there's distributors um, in different different European locations that'll be closer and easier um, to get it to. And there's a few, I mean, there's lots of uh, shops in the States that are also stocking it. So you can also like ask your local music shop. And if they don't have it, they can certainly order a few copies. That's really easy for them to do. Um, and we have, we've had several shops that have picked it up and are stocking it. So if you have a favorite music store and you just want to support local, then just let them know that you'd like a copy and they can get in touch with Conway easily. And We'll get a few copies sent to them, and then you can support your your local shop, which I always love doing. Terrific. We both have uh, links to this on our website. So my website's rogerzare.com, and uh, yours, Andy, as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's theandyhudson.com, because andyhudson.com was taken. I'm still sad about it 10 years I later. Know. It's I'm, I'm the candid clarinetist, because candid clarinetist was taken. Um, I'm glad <laughs> we share that together. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you guys, and and I, I will add as well another way that you can get a copy of the book, assuming this still uh, is gonna go through, is uh, once I hit that thousand follower Instagram, we're gonna give away a copy. Uh, and in addition, we're also gonna give away. Uh, Andy has been generous and kind, and he is offering a, a free lesson to someone, so maybe they can bring their etude book to the lesson and I'm study so directly ready. from let's the. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, well. 
you guys, thank you so much. First of all, for sending me a copy of the book, I, I, I really regret that I didn't get more time to spend with it before we came on the podcast, but I, I'm really looking forward to sort of diving into this and finding out how much I can't do. Um, so I'll look forward to that. Um, but also thanks so much for spending your time with me today. I really appreciate, uh, both of you before we leave. Is there any, are there any more future collaborations between the two of you that you guys get up your sleeves? We, we are always, um, we always have something up our sleeves. We can't seem to stop working together. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, it's too much fun. We keep, um, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, we've got, um, we've got plans to, um, we're really interested in this work. We really enjoyed the collaborative process of discovery together. You know, I told Roger that I felt like I got better as a player and as a teacher as I was working through these and writing. And he mentioned that the experience was challenging, growing for, for you, Roger. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it opened my mind to doing new things with a clarinet that I'd never thought of doing before. Um, and just like our dialogue about what these etudes should do and what they should be. Uh, I think inspired me quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I play a lot of bass clarinet and um, I'm really interested in some of those unique sounds. And I know Roger loves the bass clarinet. So that's something and I think it's composers possible. Composers love the bass clarinet. I don't know. What it, they <laughs> What's not to love? love it. Well, I could just do things that it's like a cello that can do like a thousand more things, right? I mean, that's how, that's how it's been explained to me is like, it's like the cello of new music because it just it has all these different things it can do. It's crazy. Like composers love bass clarinet. It's it's kind of funny. Um, yeah, well, guys, again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'll leave a link to the web, the Conway Publications website and both of your websites in the description, as well as on my website. Uh, speaking of my website, for more information about myself and the Candid Clarinetist podcast, please be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist or drop by our website at Candid Clarinetist Pod. Excuse me, CandidClarinetsPodcast dot com. And be on the lookout for our 1,000 follower giveaway featuring a copy of Elements of Contemporary Clarinet Technique. Once again, my name is Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to the Candid Clarinetist podcast.